So, as I mentioned, this morning we're not just worshiping, but we're talking about worship. And we will do that using Psalm 131. And I've asked another young member of our congregation, Chloe, to read it. So just a tiny bit of context before she reads. Our purpose in talking about worship is that it's one of our core practices as a church. As we come out of the pandemic, we're, we're saying we're together again on a journey, just as has been our tagline for more than a decade. But the question is, okay, why are we together? Why do we do this thing called church? And how does worship play into that? So I invite you to turn to Psalm 131. It's the second shortest psalm in the book of Psalms, and Chloe will read it for us. She's going to use the New Living Translation. When my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty, I don't concern myself with matters too great or too awesome for me to grasp. Instead, I have calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child who no longer cries for its mother's milk. Yes, like a weaned child my, is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and always. Lord, thanks be to God. And thank you, Chloe. Have you ever gone on a retreat? Many of us, if we are given the opportunity, may have the chance to go on a solitary retreat, maybe a longer period of time to think about what our purpose in life is. Maybe it's an important time in life. Maybe we are really weighed down, and so we go on a solitary retreat to reconnect with God. There are also marriage retreats or relationship retreats. Dave and I went on one of those during COVID. It was not the same, but we sat for a few hours together in a quiet house, watching the screen, learning about what it meant to be married, hopefully renewing, rejuvenating as we talked together as a married couple. But there are also many group retreats. Maybe you've been on one of those. When I was in college, I served on the residence life staff. And so each summer, just before students would come, we would come together on campus, but then we'd go off-site somewhere, often camping, so that we could grow together as a team. And the purpose of that retreat was fun, obviously, but it was also to grow relationships and to learn skills that were going to help us in the regular work of being leaders in the residence life. I've heard that some schools around here in grade seven, or maybe also in high school, there are special retreats where students get to go off-site, do adventures, try hard things, and grow together. Why do we retreat? Well, literally, retreat means to take a step back. And sometimes taking a step back from our regular life is a valuable way to grow, to learn, to take a look at something that is hard to do in regular life. It allows us to focus. It also gives us a chance to learn new skills like leadership or communication skills in a relationship. It 
helps us to form trust with the people that we work with or lead with or serve with. It forms who we are and it forms how we do our role. Why do I ask you about a retreat? Well, I wanna suggest to you that worship, what we're doing right now on Sunday morning is like a retreat for Jesus followers. It helps to shape us for the rest of our lives. I'll come back to that. Let me remind you of where we have been and where we are in this series. If you remembered to take a little contest sheet or a notes sheet for our sermon series in with you, you'll see that one of the first questions I have is a fill in the blank on that sheet of the starting points, the key points of this series. And the first one, we went over these a couple weeks ago, is that you can be part of the church, capital C, without being part of a church, a local congregation like Faith Church. If you're a Jesus follower, if you consider Jesus your Lord, you are automatically part of the church. And it is possible to follow Jesus on your own. But as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, being part of a church like this is a gift from God for that big C church. Just like a cross country team provides support and training and morale boosting and information and even help when you're, you're injured, churches help the church do what it's called to do. And do what it's called to do, it's called to help God in his mission. Churches get to help the church, all of us as Jesus followers, do God's mission. Last week before we went out to all those sites that the slideshow showed us this morning, we talked about God's mission in more depth being reconciliation. The history of redemption is this plot line of rising action that climaxed in Jesus Christ coming to earth, dying to bring reconciliation. And the rest of history is this falling action, denouement, towards full resolution, full reconciliation. So the church and churches exist to help God accomplish that reconciliation that Jesus initiated. So our key question in this series is how do what we're doing in here, how does everything we do in here, like relationship building, worship, giving gifts, doing mission, spiritual transformation, those five core practices, how does that help us accomplish the mission, reconciliation out there? We don't get together on Sunday mornings just because. We get together because it's part of what we do the rest of our lives as well. And that's where I come back to you and say, we come together to retreat together as a body of Christ so that we are formed in who we are and we are shaped in our role for what we do when we're not gathered here together. So as I said, we will focus this morning on worship, offering inspiring worship to God and how that fits. 
And we will do that using Psalm 131. Now, Psalm 131 is one of 15 Psalms of Ascents. They're short songs that scholars believe were sung by the people of Israel as they journeyed to Jerusalem three times a year for festivals. So these were worship songs. They're like, like the people of Israel were going on retreat. They were going to Jerusalem to be together to worship in a special way. And they sang songs as they went, like the wheels on the bus, except maybe a little bit more meaningful. These were songs that formed them for what they were gonna be doing while they were in Jerusalem. So we can look at them as to get a sense for what is worship supposed to do? How is it supposed to form us? There is absolutely no way that I could or would try to say everything there is about worship in one message. But let's take a look for what is possible through the lens of Psalm 131. Now, some of those songs of ascents were our joyful. I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. My feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. That's a joyful one. And some of them are very sad and longing cries for help. Things like, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, hear my voice. Now, Psalm 131, as you heard it, I hope you got the sense that it was neither joyful nor really sad, a cry for help. It was quiet and meditative. That's not always what we expect or look for when we come to worship. But let's see how it might form us. It was the one that caught my attention this week. I want to suggest to you that through Psalm 131, God invites us to be formed in four ways. The first one is simply the first word. Chloe read from New Living Translation, which in this case is closer to the original Hebrew, Lord or Yahweh. God's covenant name is how the psalmist starts. We, as followers of Jesus, those who, have, who come after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, might not use the word Yahweh. Our, our name for God would be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that whole trinity. When we come to worship, we get to be in conversation with the fullness of who God has revealed himself to be. As I said earlier, it's in response to God's call to worship. We respond in conversation with him. We pray we sing to God as prayers. We listen to what he has to say. We hear God's voice throughout the worship service, but especially in the call to worship, in God's greeting and benediction at the beginning and the end, God's voice frames what we do together in worship on Sunday. The next half of the psalm has four Lows, the Hebrew word for not or no, low. The psalmist defines who he is not. And it is a posture of humility. He says, my heart is not proud, 
My eyes are not haughty. I am not concerned with great matters or things too wonderful for me. And then the fourth one doesn't even show up in our English. It's the word but, or as Chloe read, indeed, or instead, sorry. It's that Hebrew word lo shows up again, just saying surely not. The psalmist invites us into a posture of humility, of quietness, of acknowledging that we are not God, that God is God and we are not. This is a really counter-cultural thing. And one reason we do worship together is because I think on our own it would be too easy for us to forget this. So when we acknowledge our sin, our brokenness, the hard things of life, we acknowledge God, we don't know what to do. And although we want to learn and grow, we acknowledge that we cannot fix it on our own. We need you. This is something that is very different often from what we encounter in the workplace or even at meetings at church. We have a can-do-it attitude. We want to strive. We want to grow. We want to aspire. And some of that is, I think, God-glorifying. But to come to church together and say, we are not God, is an important formative experience for us. So we do that again in what songs we sing, how we confess what we've done wrong, the ways that we've broken God's desire for reconciliation and restoration. Even our prayers are, especially a congregational prayer, is a prayer for help, because God, we cannot fix it on our own. And then the psalmist has this beautiful, striking, feminine, maternal image. He has two phrases in Hebrew that both end with the word nefesh, which is often translated soul, but it can also mean living being or breath. He is talking about the heart of who he is. And the psalmist says, I have quieted my breath. I have calmed my soul. And the deepest part of me, I am quiet. And then he says, it's like I'm a weaned child with my mother. That's what it's like in my inner being. Now, weaned is not a term we use very often. When babies like Julia are born, their immediate instinct is, where is my mom? I need food. And babies for months are naturally born to crave nourishment from their mother often to the point where if a baby is with its mother, it naturally starts to feel hungry. Babies with their mother in the first months of life are not always 
restful because they're desperate for what they need to survive. But a weaned child is one that's been given a bottle, been given solid food. And so a weaned child can be with their mom in a more relaxed, loving state. So when I think about what it means to be a weaned child with God, I think of contentment, first of all. Surely it's an intimate relationship, one of being sure of God's love, God's protection, God's provision. That posture is one of contentment. We express that and experience that in the sacraments, especially when we eat and drink at the Lord's table, we are reminded that Jesus Christ, death and resurrection nourishes us with eternal life and that Jesus is offering us through the Holy Spirit strength and provision and love every single day. When we baptize babies and hopefully we'll get to baptize Julia soon, we remember that God's love is for all his children and that he invites us into his family. He washes away our sin and gives us the spirit to guide us in new life. When we come together and see those things in worship, when we talk about them, we are formed to be more content That is the invitation of worship. But it strikes me that being a weaned child with its mother means something else too. Contentment, certainly, but also confidence. If I think of my children, when they got to be old enough to move around, when they were with me in a safe environment, they felt free to explore. They would crawl away. They would see what their surroundings were like. They might interact with other children or other adults who happened to be there. As long as I was a safe distance away, they would be okay. And I wonder if this is also what the psalmist is getting at. In the psalmist's deepest inner being, confident of Jesus' love, God's love and protection and provision, the psalmist is able to explore, do things with the Father, with Jesus, with the Spirit, in that power of love and contentment. So when we are confident and content in God's love and provision, we can listen to his word preached and read. We can hear the challenge and the opportunity to give and share what we've been given. We are willing to respond gratefully and joyfully in those ways. So the psalmist started with an address to covenant God, Yahweh and spoke about humility, not being not God, but then also expressed contentment and confidence. 
the fourth line in this very short psalm is an address to O Israel. It would be easy for the psalmist to appear like the psalmist was all on his own, completely intimate with covenant God. And yet in this last verse, we see that he's actually got other people around him. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and always. So too, our worship is not only a conversation between us and God. It's also a conversation and an interaction with those who are around us. This call to hope in the Lord now and always is actually a huge one. We see the confidence and contentment he's been able to cultivate, giving rise to this call to others to have the same sort of trust and hope in him. I see the importance of worship being communal in the ways that we can encourage one another. I've asked James and Emily to share a story about how worship shapes them, and I hope it is an encouragement to you. There will be days when we come into worship too proud to hear from God, and seeing others humble might guide us to be formed well. But there may be other times where we come anxious and desperate, feeling unweaned, desperate for God, and experiencing someone else's trust 